0: As marketers, we seem to have a best practice for everything. If we don't have an idea or an answer, we can just follow everyone else's. Tips and tricks for growing followers, fans, leads, customers, you name it. Blueprints and playbooks to advertise everywhere that accepts advertising. There are even tens of thousands of resources outlining exactly how to make a podcast. So, okay, let's see. Uh, This says to create an outline for the episode first. Okay, so exceptions, season two, episode one, cold open. 3 minutes in runtime, and let's see, the goal is to intrigue the audience so they'll continue to listen, write a brief narrated piece about something they care about, and then leave something open-ended for later. Okay. The, The point is that endless lists exist, and just as many ultimate guides, all of which means we can stop learning and start checking boxes, right? I mean, that's what ultimate means. Final. Nothing further. No need to find any new information or keep learning. As marketers, we even have blog post idea generators at our disposal. Have you heard of these things? You just punch in a bunch of keywords and out comes an endless list of exactly what headlines you should write. It's like our brains are broken. And this one generator I found even admits that seemingly because they say as a tagline, for when your brain is out of service. Come on. Look, we can do better by having a plan for the one thing we don't seem to have a plan for spending time wisely. We have a process and a playbook to do all kinds of marketing stuff, but rarely, if ever, do we stop to wonder, should we do that stuff? This is Exceptions, season two, my friend, season two. Welcome back. To Well, I guess to me, but also to you, I hope. And uh, if you're new to the show, this series is an exploration about why certain B2B brands are betting so heavily and so proactively on building brands. They care about great customer experience after decades of B2B marketers overlooking brand or even considering it a dirty word. And some things in season two are going to stay the same, but some things will be the opposite of the same. One of the things that is not changing is me. I'm your host, Jay Akunzo, author of the book about questioning conventional thinking, Break the Wheel. And this show is still presented by Drift. Drift offers conversational marketing tools to help improve the experience of how businesses buy from other businesses. And so that's why they care so much about this topic. And we have a special episode planned with Drift for season two. Just wait for that. That's coming. But... In terms of the things that we need to keep experimenting on, keep improving it, and change for season two, we're going to throw some new types of companies at you. These are sort of experimental episodes, some atypical choices, I would say, that can teach us something powerful in their own way. And few companies out of that bunch represent that idea of experimentation like today's. So, let's get to it. Today, we're talking to a company who wants marketers to spend their time on the most important things, the most creative things, the most impactful things, rather than just the most things. This company is SparkToro. Co-founded by Rand Fishkin, the former founder of Moz, and Casey Henry, formerly of Moz, Wistia, and HubSpot, SparkToro is a search engine for audience intelligence. Their mission is to make it easier to discover the websites, blogs, podcasts, social accounts, and publications that reach your audience. Now, audience intelligence is not a buzzy phrase in marketing. You don't hear that phrase a ton, not as much as I think it deserves to be spoken. But after 10 years in content marketing, I can personally tell you, audience intelligence is the difference between teams who truly resonate with others and those who just ship commodity stuff, who, who frenetically trend hop and seek hacks and shortcuts. In other words, when you intimately know your audience, you can be proactive instead of reactive. Rand and Casey know that better than almost anybody, and they want to usher in a better era for marketers to achieve that. But before we talk to them, both about that topic and about the rather atypical but refreshing way they're building their company, we first need to start where we always begin on exceptions, with the voice of an actual customer. Uh, right. Okay. So SparkToro doesn't have any customers. Not yet. They're actually pre-launch, which is a big reason I wanted to talk to them on this show when we're talking to them. They're nine months into working on the product and building towards their favorite future as entrepreneurs. And I thought that, Highlighting their work now and getting inside their minds today would give us a unique chance to hear from two of the smartest people in marketing and tech as they slog through and also celebrate their earliest days of building a brand. And as you'll hear, while the two co-founders share strong points of view on many things, they also differ quite a bit. So
1: Spark Toro is a very unconventional name. What's the deal with that? It basically was a list of criteria that fit. So you know those criteria included no other associations. If, if for example, our initial idea didn't work at all and we came up with something totally different, SparkToro Toro can mean anything, right? It, it can be branded to whatever we want it to be branded to. It is not stuck in a particular uh, place, which I think is was appealing to us. Uh, one of the one of our big requirements was if you say it once to you know, a hotel desk clerk or someone behind the counter at a, um, at a coffee place, you know, uh, what's your email address? I'll put it in here. If I say rand at sparktoro.com, can they type it in correctly? The first time and sparktoro fit that sort of, you know, once you hear it, you can spell it, you can say it, it is not confusing how it's pronounced. You know, I had so much of that with Moz, uh, in the early days that it, it was SEO Moz and you can imagine, right? People saying all kinds of variations of that and, and not being able to put it easily into computers. And And I think that affects, um, the memorability of a brand Like right? how easy is it to remember and recall. And I think that affects uh, brand association and, and how strongly and quickly you can build those things too. And then to be honest, uh, the inspiration from the name came from Totoro, which I'm a big fan of, the, the Japanese cartoon.
0: Oh, oh, nice. I can see that, yeah. <laughs> what yeah. What is it about that that you're such a fan of?
1: I love the innocence and the creativity and the sort of imaginative alternative world. It's somehow both very simple and very complex at the same time. Just a lot to love there.
0: When, when you're this early, uh, and, you know, where where do ideas like brand and customer experience fit? Are those phrases entering your mind at all? And how proactive are you being about those things when you're this soon in the customer or the uh, company's journey?
1: Yeah. So, I mean, a lot, the customer experience uh, drives a ton of how we think about the product and the data and the systems behind it, right? So, um, for example, Casey is very speed obsessed. And so the way he Builds the databases and the way he stores the data, and you know how he structured the um, which machines are on demand at AWS for us to to call up and and um, and grow. You know, easily uh, tap into those technology issues uh, certainly play a role, and so too does the interface. So we're we're working with a designer, um, a contractor, and. You know, she is. Um, she's actually very on board. One the the design theme I think we're going with is uh, is actually kind of Totoro inspired, um, which is which is fun. And the um, you know the way that we're planning that customer experience, the user experience inside the product uh, is also centered on this idea of how do we how do we quickly show people this. This sort of wondrous new data that they haven't been able to access before in a way that makes sense to them
0: i just want to make sure you and i are on the same page my, my listener friend i asked rand where brand fits this early on and he immediately talked about product he didn't talk about marketing he talked about product that historically has not been the view of many marketing leaders or ceos which is rand's role brand was always this idea of like madmen and don draper and all those tactics it's the big idea the key message the promotional language plastered everywhere but on this show we've defined brand as something else pulled from all those lessons in season one from companies like envision and gusto and wistia and first round capital and zoom and many more the way we define brand here is that it's how others feel about the behavior of your people how others feel as in the experience they have of you. And everyone has an experience of your company, so now it's on you to decide, are we gonna be proactive about creating that experience? And as for that second half, how others feel about your people, why do I say it like that? Well, because a company is merely an empty legal shell. It doesn't exist. It doesn't exist until people start doing the work. All the processes, the IP, the products, the content, the precedent and the new stuff, the new ideas, it's all a result of people no people, no company. We can hide behind stuffier terminology all we want, like brand or customer experience or company, and maybe that tries to protect ourselves against exposure to the outside world. I have no idea. But the fact remains, it's how our people behave or the people our people hire that really creates the brand. And Rand has a very clear vision for how he wants his company, sorry, his people to behave. For example, Rand firmly believes in choosing the small local coffee shop over the giant corporation.
1: And and that's both a personal preference and also a, I guess, socially driven belief, right? So at the macro level, I believe that it is healthier for economies and human beings and and the wealth of countries in the world uh, to have many small businesses rather than a few large ones dominating any given space. Um, I don't think the monopoly you know, sort of end game of late stage capitalism, which, which I believe we're, we're sort of experiencing now. And I think many of the world's citizens and the United States' citizens um, are worried about. I don't think that's healthy. And, and I think the data would, would suggest that it is not healthy.
0: And the type of business Rand wants to build isn't totally aligned with what most of us picture when we picture tech entrepreneurship, especially since it's gone sort of mainstream in a
1: way. So SparkToro, remember, is very early, right? It's just me and Casey working on building essentially a, an alpha prototype, not even a, you know, not even a beta yet. Um, and the business has been around since I guess technically I started at March of last year, but Casey didn't come aboard until May and we didn't raise our round until June. So we're six to nine months in, right? I think the biggest decisions were around how we wanted to start and build this business. And those included some strange things, Um, I think, especially for a tech startup, which have these, a very grow fast mentality, even if you don't raise venture, I think a lot of tech companies are encouraged to show progress in a venture style way, Uh, meaning, hey, let's, let's hire a team, you know, it might be a small team, but let's hire a team right away. And we opted not to do that. We decided, Hey, we want to stay. Um, This is, it's a very old school, small business approach, but we want to stay just the two of us until we're profitable. Once we're profitable, and we can afford to bring on another employee, then we will, right. But we're we're taking this incredibly, you know, throwback approach to building a business rather than spending uh, a lot of money ahead of our growth path. Traditionally, one of the things that you do in tech world is you want your investors and yourselves to be able to get the capital gains tax exemption, right? You know, a lot of the tech world is structured around tech financing world anyway, is structured around being a tax dodge vehicle. I mean, the only reason venture capital is an asset class is because I can't remember if it's the 60s or 70s, but, you know, basically a bunch of rich people lobbied the government to get this capital gains exception. And so instead of paying ordinary income rates... You get to pay this 15 or 20% uh, on capital gains and save a bunch of money, which is why all these funds put billions of dollars into vehicles to invest in a way such that they get capital gains. And we we thought that's kind of shitty um, and we weren't particularly excited about it. Like Saving 25 or 30% on our taxes is not our driving motivation. Um, and there's a lot of things that you can do in really cool ways if you don't care about that. For example, you can do this thing called profit sharing. So Spark Toro is an LLC. Uh, it is not a C corp or an S corp. As such, uh, we can can distribute our profits to our investors in years where we feel like we can do, you know, healthily do so and don't need to reinvest the um, the money entirely back into growth. And once we, our structure is such that once we repay our investors their initial sum, you know the 1.3 million that we raised, uh, we get to raise our salaries, and Casey and I also participate in the profit sharing. Um, until then, our salaries are sort of capped at a you know Seattle software engineer average, uh, and we we don't participate in that profit sharing. So there's there's sort of this. You know, incentive model that we built in for ourselves that also helps our investors be able to trust that we're going to get them their money back and and then participate with them in the in the growth and profitability of the business. Spark
0: Toro is aiming to be not a unicorn company—that popular notion of a startup that explodes to a billion-dollar-plus business—but a zebra company.
1: Yeah. So, um, you know, Jennifer Brandel and and Mara Zapeta and the the uh, the other folks behind the zebras movement. Which you can you can find more about on, I think it's zebrasunite.com. They have this whole sort of framework of what is a zebra versus unicorn. And and there's a number of, I think, good and helpful comparisons. But the the basic concept is that rather than chasing exclusively an um, extract a wealth extraction focused, you know, billion or multi-billion dollar valuation company that is backed by institutional investors. Who have LPs, uh, you are instead seeking an independent, uh, more creative, more um, uh, individual and employee and customer focused type of business.
0: Rand was quick to point out that he doesn't believe there's anything inherently wrong with venture capital. He raised $29 million at Moz after all. However,
1: I don't get excited in the morning, you know, going to work and saying, man, I am going to make this multi billion dollar pension fund another 200 million dollars. It's like, it's just not an interesting way to spend your life. And and that's what you're doing with with venture, right? You're essentially making extraordinarily rich people and funds richer and richer. And I think that's, you know, that's okay, right? They have money, so they're the ones who can afford to invest in you. But uh, for SparkToro, for example, I think with a you know with a couple of, of exceptions, most of the angel investors are all all people that I know that my wife and I know personally and and relatively well, and they're people who come over for dinner. and Thankfully, they have enough money to be able to invest. We're, we're lucky to have a network like that, but they're not tens or hundreds of millions of dollars uh, of wealth, even uh, never mind billions. And um, I'm excited to you know help them and their portfolios do better. I'm excited to help our employees, which we hope to have someday, uh, do better. I'm excited to help our customers, right? Those those things make me interested.
0: Did you catch what Rand said about employees? He said, which we hope to have someday. As of when we spoke in January 2019, there was just one other person working with Rand, his co-founder, Casey Henry. And Casey has a much different view on the topic we explore on this series, brand.
2: Rand really wants to create a brand that's really memorable, and somebody sees it in the instant and they instantly like, "Oh, that's Spark Toro," and I and I agree with him on that sentiment. The portion where I struggle with is I ultimately am the one that have to, has to build it, and so <laughs> we were talking to our designer, and you know, Rand's like, "Oh, we're gonna, you know, we really want to be bold and beautiful and have great interactives and do these things," and I'm on the other end like, "Yeah, not not so much on my end, like." I want, you know, things that are subtle and nice to build. And, you know, I don't want to have to create a million things from scratch that ultimately in six months we could throw away because we find that our users don't build it. And so it's kind of one of those moments where our designer was like, okay, you guys are both saying very different things, like what direction should we go? And so we, you know, we ultimately had to have a conversation separate from our designer of like, all right, are we are we both thinking the same thing and we came to that uh, compromise of where we're going and she made different iterations where I think we're both happy with what's, what's coming our direction. So, but that's, it's always me on the other end being like, Oh man, I gotta, I gotta build that crazy thing that he's thinking of. I don't know about that.
0: The tension between what Casey cares about and what Rand cares about is healthy. I believe that. And so do these guys. They know how it makes them better.
1: I mean, so Casey is, um, very curmudgeonly about a lot of things, and and in a super healthy way, right? Um, meaning that he's not curmudgeonly about you know um, I don't like you or people or care about those kinds of things, right? He's curmudgeonly in terms of hey, are we sure that this is the right thing to be doing? Is this the right next thing to be doing? Do we absolutely have to build this? You
2: know, I think it's one of those things where when you're a two person company, it's it's different than. A forty-person company, or even a twelve-person company, or even a ten-person company, and I—I I understand a lot of what he's thinking, and so I see it. But at the same time, like I'm—we're we're only two people, and I don't want us to get bogged down into this crazy, you know, spend six months iterating on something where we might not know how that ultimately can be taken taken in the end. So sometimes I see it, but at the other end, it's like, ooh with two people that's a real struggle for me to spend large quantities of time doing some of that
1: i mean you know it's it's the little things like casey is a very you know he's from he's from the midwest and he's a very like all-american meat and potatoes kind of guy and so you know when geraldine and i go out to eat we're like okay what's the you know what's the uh most interesting place that we can find and like oh there's this really well-rated uh, Chinese restaurant in in Chinatown, Boston. Let's let's go there and you know, we'll we'll hike through the cold and um, we'll order you know jiao long bao and be like Casey, come on, try it. It's like ooh, I don't know about this, but it, you know it's fun. Um, I think those those kinds of life experiences are the ones that we'll look back, look back on. A lot of I think my
2: best memories so far have just been when. You know our families have gotten together to just you know hang out and that it sounds weird but oh man that, yeah there's a lot of like a lot of the stories in the good times come from when we're together
1: you know we get to see casey and lindsay casey's wife and and their their girls probably every every other week we'll do brunch together or get together for something and and it's great like i i've gotten to see these kids grow up and formed real relationships with them and like they know where the toy bin is at our house (laughs) it's cool
2: it's something about when we're together that that really is exciting to me
1: i think in 10 years you look back on the human aspects
0: It makes total sense to hear Rand and Casey talk this way, because if there is any emergent traits or beliefs supporting this early version of SparkToro, it's that the problem they aim to solve with their product is a fundamentally human one. There's the surface level, the marketing one. They want to create a search engine that helps you see the things on the internet that interest your
1: audience. This job that every marketer has to do at some point, where we try and figure out, hey, where is my audience paying attention and how can I best reach them? And I think, you know, unfortunately for a lot of us, we've thrown up our hands and said, you know, that's really hard to do. Let's just use Facebook and Google's advertising networks and, you know, toss money at them. But I think as those have become very, very crowded spaces and very expensive, people are starting to look outside of that again. And so we're asking questions like, uh, where can I reach them? What YouTube channels do they subscribe to? What websites do they visit? what columns do they read? Uh, who do they follow on Twitter and Instagram and LinkedIn? And you manually research and you take sort of an educated guesstimate, right? Of, okay, I think these these seem like they're the five to 10 big popular podcasts in this sector or the you know influential people in this world or w- whatever it is. What we sort of realized, what we figured was, it's crazy that there's not a search engine where you can just go and you can type in interior designers and it will give you a list of podcasts that interior designers listen to and events that they attend and hashtags that they use and people that they follow and which publications they read and what websites they visit. And then you can go do your marketing in all those places with that audience intelligence data. And so that's what we set out to build. Okay, so that's the obvious, the surface
0: level, the marketing problem they're trying to solve but they're really solving a people problem underneath that. And that underpins everything they're doing and why SparkToro can potentially be a special company. So what is this fundamental people problem? How does SparkToro plan on solving those issues? They wanna help you better invest your time as a marketer. And that is today's big idea. Today's big idea, invest your time Don't just spend it. As marketers, we spend a lot of our time on things that don't have the best returns, in other words, aren't the best use of our time. Rand's observation has been that we do a ton of manual research to find sites, podcasts, social media accounts, media outlets, and more, trying to figure out what influences our audience and where they spend time so we can sponsor, collaborate, and connect. Then we dump all of that on a spreadsheet, and it's all based on educated guessing. But all of that research only prepares us for the work. Then we have to execute it. Things don't get much better there either. We tend to choose how we'll execute, i.e. how we'll spend our time, in one of three different ways in marketing today, all of which center on finding the right quote-unquote best practice. The first way we make decisions is we prioritize a best practice that carries weight in our minds. This is the conventional wisdom, whatever is most common in a space, a job, at a company, on a channel, you name it. But this can be dangerous. For example, in the newspaper business, there's a common convention to print your newspaper on something called broadsheets, that big piece of paper we associate with newspapers. But in the early 2000s, a British paper, The Independent, decided to shrink their pages and they were criticized by their peers. But what those peers didn't realize was where broadsheets came from. See, in the early 1700s, yeah, the British government imposed a tax newspapers and it was based on the number of pages that they printed so being very clever people those publishers just increased the sizes of each page they could print the same number of words on fewer sheets and avoid the tax in the 1800s that tax was repealed but by then it didn't matter broadsheets had become the conventional approach so in the 2000s when the independent shrank their pages they were ridiculed everybody knows you have to print your paper on broadsheets that's the best practice that's the conventional thinking But I'd ask you, isn't it kind of ridiculous to cling to a best practice born centuries ago based on regulations that no longer exist? The Harvard Business Review later talked to the publishers of The Independent. Not only did that paper save money after the change, they sold more print editions. So just because we're spending time doing whatever's most common doesn't mean we're investing our time wisely. The second way we spend our time is to prioritize not the best practice that carries weight from the past, but the one that feels newest. We love the latest trend, but that can be a bad investment too. For instance, in 2010, the Google AdWords team released a new feature for their search ads called site links. You know those extra headlines below the main one on an ad? Those are site links. Google told advertisers back then that when they tested the feature, they found that ads with site links got an increase of clicks by around 30% on average. So, more clicks means more traffic, and more traffic means more sales on your company's site, so enable the feature. But more sales on your site wasn't a guarantee. However, what was guaranteed is that Google would make a hell of a lot more money on those clicks. I will never forget site links, because I was on the Google sales team at the time. Within months, we convinced millions of companies to switch it on. But then, thousands of small businesses started calling us and they were pissed off because while they got a lot more clicks, they rarely converted that traffic into business on their websites. Their websites were a mess. Google was laughing all the way to the bank and I sat there sick to my stomach. Just because we spend time doing whatever is newest doesn't guarantee we're investing that time wisely. Then there's the final, third way we spend our time as marketers. We're not looking to the past. We're not looking to the future. No, we're making our decisions based on no plan at all. We're just doing stuff, just lots and lots and lots of stuff. We're gonna be on Twitter. Great, well, when should we send out those tweets? The top result on Google says 3 p.m. So now we're gonna tweet at 3 p.m. Except now that that's out there, guess what happens? That is no longer the best time to tweet but we don't have time to fix that because here comes Snapchat and now our boss is emailing us and they're like, Hey, what's our Snapchat strategy? And we have no idea, but we're going to jump all over Snapchat anyway, but then Instagram keeps copying everything Snapchat is doing. So we are also going to be on Instagram at the very same time. Oh yes, we are. But have you heard it's the era of video? Yeah, it's the era of video. Are we making enough video marketing that video, measuring that video? It is the era of video. And also podcasts. You can't forget about podcasts, but podcasts are just a subset of something larger called voice. And voice is eating communications. Did you know that? Yeah. As marketers, we have to get ready for a world dominated by voice. What are we going to do in that world? Hey, Alexa, please punch me in the face. As marketers, we are so good at spending our time. But rarely, if ever, do we stop to consider whether it's the best possible investment. Invest your time, don't just spend it. Few investments return more often and more lucratively than intimately understanding your audience.
2: The, the problem we're trying to solve is something that can take weeks for a, a team member on a marketing team to do correctly. And our hope is that of weeks to do customer research and really understand what drives your audience is that it can take days for this first version of our product. We ultimately want to save you days and possibly weeks of effort trying to figure out what your audience is interested in.
1: In a lot of ways audience intelligence was the the problem space that I was excited to tackle because it is totally open, totally untapped. It's weird to me. If I, if you know, if you and I started a company today and we said, "Hey, we're going to go Try and target, I don't know, the dental field. How do we reach dentists? Just that problem alone is so overwhelming, so challenging that it stops many companies and startups right in their tracks. And I think that if if SparkToro can achieve its mission and be, you know, a very low-cost way to literally type in dentists and be able to see all the places where you can go to do whatever kinds of creative paid or organic marketing you want. Uh, I think reducing that friction is a, an awesome thing. Time is is one of those precious things that we all
2: wish we had more of. And I think in the end, I, I would hope that if you're you're doing audience research, that you can take that time to build more meaningful relationships with those people that you're trying to reach out to. Um, and I think that's something that, you know, you probably see on a daily influencer in your inbox, and I do too, is just these canned responses that go out that are, you know, I, I think of when we raised money, I can't tell you the number of emails that I got from development companies that were, you know, we saw you raise this amount of money, we know you're going to hire devs, you should just hire us instead. And it, they, you know, the 30 emails I got, they were all just kind of the same. And my hope would be, that that time that that marketer or whoever's doing this research research gets back is that they can build you know a more meaningful response and or an outreach to these these potential
1: customers the creative approach that you can have when you talk to a podcast host and say hey we want to like sponsor the show or work with you in some fashion and you get to a place where you agree hey let's Let's meet up in this random third location because we're both going to be there for this event and let's do a live show and then we'll also turn it into the podcast, but we'll do a video segment on it and, hey, let's have it be more creative and we'll actually walk around the event or you know, whatever it is.
0: Right. Not non-programmatic, essentially moving away from all things programmatic.
1: Precisely. Yeah. And I think that those are the kinds of things that can capture attention and earn return on investment in truly exciting ways. That, that's where you venture into new territories and you discover things that work and things that don't work. And you can get potentially outsized returns by being much more creative and inventive than your competitors.
0: I, I recently, I, I, I checked out one of these blog posts that you've been writing um, and it spoke to me and I'm curious if we can unpack one of the key topics that, within it, which was on January 2nd, you wrote an article called The Tyranny of Optimizing for Amplification. And I just want to start with that word tyranny. What did you mean by that?
1: I'm really talking about this constraining force that overwhelms your creativity and ability to think about and share and amplify and write about and broadcast all the things that you truly believe in or care about or are curious about or want to be creative about. And instead, sort of submitting yourself to the whims and perceptions your perceived belief in what other people will want. And I think, you know, marketers have to do this in general, right? You you subsume your own ideas to try and get into the headspace of your audience and to have empathy for them and to appeal to a large percentage of them and do that in, you know, creative ways but constrained creative ways. And then in your personal life, you you don't have to do that, right? You you get to be more yourself. Except now, now that every person is potentially a brand, and and you know these social media platforms have sort of um, codified and gamified every type of social interaction. I think Instagram is the most. Um, tyrannous of the examples, but but you could certainly make the case for Facebook. You can absolutely make the case for Twitter and LinkedIn as well in sort of the personal professional uh, crossover, which is that all, all these systems work in the same way. If you have done a good job of appealing to the crowd, right, in a way that gets lots of engagement on whatever thing you post, your photo, your story, your video, your your, your update, Facebook or Instagram or, or Twitter or LinkedIn, they will show your content more and more to a broader and broader audience, which gets you more likes and hearts and you know engagement and more followers, et cetera. And if you don't, if you don't conform to what the algorithm slash the people want, uh, they will show you to fewer and fewer people until you're nearly invisible on these networks. And the knowledge of that has made everyone start to think like a constrained marketer, but about everything. Should I take a photo with this friend of mine? Do I look the way that I should look in the photo that will get me the most likes? Is the background right? Is the lighting right? Should I post this update about this cause that I care about? No, it probably won't resonate with that many people. But what if I could tell it in a story format so that more people would care about it? it's all that kind of stuff right suddenly everybody is yeah succumbing to the tyranny of optimizing for amplification
2: you know i can think back to the, the companies i worked at maz wistia hubspot like yeah we were doing some customer research on what influenced them but we we really didn't know and we it was it was difficult to to figure out and so you know we're we're playing blind a little bit and kind of you know we you know taking a lot of those thinking like oh these 50 reporters would probably be interested in what we're doing when the reality was probably only three or four of them were and if we would have known that only those three or four would have been interested in the first place like we probably could have made our approach to those three or four reporters much better than trying to send out you know 50 uh, contact points to, to all of those people.
1: Branding is interesting because it is not only defining what you are and what you want to be and how you want to be perceived, but also how you don't want to be perceived. For us, for SparkToro, we have been occasionally, uh, I think, you know, misidentified or, or identified as trying to tackle the space that some people call influencer marketing. And we've tried intentionally to stay very far away from that. Like we try not to use those words at all. We try not to be active in that space. I think I've blogged about it once, but I try to stay pretty far away because of what influencer marketing has come to mean and the fact that we want SparkToro to be much broader audience intelligence than just, you know, here's a half-naked person on Instagram that you can pay $500 to to pose with your product. When people say, oh, it's having a moment right now, and has for the last you know, two years and probably will for a little while to come. Uh, and there's tons of dollars being spent there and a bunch of acquisitions happening in that space. Are you sure you don't wanna be associated with that you know, and sort of ride that wave while you can? And my answer is no, I, I really don't. I am not interested in wave riding or in uh, seeing the ups and downs. I, I'm much more passionate about this real problem of discovering sources of influence.
0: It's simple math, really. Everybody has an experience of your company, and that shapes your brand. But when we choose to proactively cultivate and build ours to provide great experiences, not as an accident, but with a purpose and on purpose, we start to spend our time wisely. We start to invest it. In this era of infinite choice, where the buyer has all the power, B2B companies can no longer afford to overlook the power of brand. Proactively building your brand is a damn good investment. This episode was written, hosted, and produced by me, Jay Akunzo, and this series is a Seeking Wisdom original. That's the name of Drift's original podcast, and it contains all kinds of great knowledge around getting better every day, hosted by Drift CEO, David Cancel, and their VP of marketing, Dave Gearhart. The two of them actually just wrote a book, and so between the book and all the interviews and knowledge that they share, be sure to go to your podcast player of choice and search for Seeking Wisdom if you're not there already. Speaking of drift, the guys there only want to request six star reviews from listeners. Yeah, six stars. And after an entire season one of me having no idea how that actually works, I can finally share with you today that that I still have no idea. No idea. You guys, how does somebody leave a six star review? Can we just... I mean, I can't... Like, I mean, I tried. Okay, uh, if you like the show, hey, why not give us the most possible stars and maybe say some nice things? I'd like that. Also, I understand how that's physically possible. So, yeah. (laughs) Anyways, as always, thank you for listening to Exceptions. I'm Jay Akunzo, author of the book Break the Wheel, and I'll talk to you on the next episode. See ya!